This past week, uh, I met up with uh, Lou George and Bruce Marshall. And I told Bruce something about myself. And when he heard it, he said, oh, if I'd known that a week ago, I wouldn't have voted for you. And I was like, okay, I think I need to share this with the wider congregation. So I'm going to share that with you this morning. And uh, it's probably something that you've been wondering for a while. And it's a question that you've probably want answered. And this is the question. Is he a crows or a power man? And uh, I think the blame lies solely at the feet of one man. You see, when my family and I, we, we moved to Adelaide, we'd been living in Hong Kong for many years, and suddenly we were introduced to this crazy game of AFL. And to be honest, I still think it's a crazy game. But it was like, how do we understand it? So, you know, we always taught, go and seek wisdom, find a man of integrity, a man who knows the skill. So I sought out such a man, and I found him. And uh, I said, Lou, what do I do? And he said, my son, power shall come upon you. And then he proceeded to anoint me with uh, power merchandise. He put on a beanie and a scarf. And ever since that time, I've been a power man. Now, I know that's probably not the best week to announce this, given what they went through last weekend, uh, but that's where we stand. To be honest, I just really like the colors. That's, uh, that's the truth of it, uh, but that was it. Um, I also want to stand before you and say that I am a sinner saved by grace that this past week, I've just been incredibly humbled. I am totally aware of the weight of responsibility of shepherding the flock. And I will fail you guys. I will disappoint you. And I won't be able to live up to all the expectations that you might have. But this is the promise I do make to you. I promise to love you and to point you to Christ. My heart's desire is that I will fear the Lord and nothing and no one else. And only then will I be able to truly point you to Him. I was reading this this past week in Isaiah 66, and it says this, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I read that and I said, Lord, please make me such a man. Make me a man who's humble before you, that doesn't seek a glory for himself, that wants to point his people to you. Make me one who's contrite in spirit, always relying on you. And Lord, make me a man that just trembles at your word, trembles at your word, because I know that I have to give an account before you one day. So I ask you, I ask you for your grace and your prayers. But the one thing that we can rest on, and it is a beautiful thing, is that Jesus is the head of this church, and he will always be. And that is a good thing. Uh, my wife, she listens to this Bible app called The Bible in One Year, and it's by Nikki Gumbel. 
and she always comes home, well, she doesn't always come home, but she often comes home and says, my friend Nikki says, and it's become a little bit of a joke between us, is what did Nikki say to you today? Uh, and the other day she came home and she said, my friend Nikki says, life is a series of problems. And you know what, when I heard that, I know it's true, but I really don't want to hear that, right? I kind of, I want smooth sailing. Life is blue skies and clear seas. And I'll kind of do anything to get smooth sailing. This is kind of how I want life to be. Um, It'll come up now. Just nice, clear. Everyone loves that, right? Did you hear? Oh, lovely. You guys want that too. And you know, advertising kind of feeds into this. If we look at the the products and the services that we buy, the advertising is, is try, if you get this product, if you get this service, then life will be easier, right? We'll take away some of your problems. Life will be more enjoyable. Life will be free from problems. Um, you know, we just look at Disney. Disney says this. One of their catchphrases was, the happiest place on earth. And who doesn't want to be in the happiest place on earth? But we're not at Disneyland right now, so that means we're not in the happiest place on earth. But there's this idea that if you go to Disneyland, all your problems will go away and you'll just be happy. Uh, And then there's this one. This was a few years back. It was one of my favorite ones. It was Red Bull. And it says, Red Bull gives you... Yeah, you all know it, right? Red Bull gives you wings. And so if you don't have Red Bull... You don't have wings. You can't feel good. You can't rise above. And you know, the truth is, advertising works because it appeals to this default position that we all have. See, the default position is that we want to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. But life is not like that. It's a little bit more like this, right? It's, uh, it's kind of like you're in the rough seas. And I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. You kind of feel like you're riding a wave and your stomach's turning and you wonder, oh, are we going to get through this? And you get to the top of the wave and you, oh my goodness, there's another one waiting for me. That's really what, what kind of life is. And if I had to sit down with each and every one of you now and I had to ask you, What problems do you have going on in your life at this point in time? Um, I catch up with a guy probably uh, once a month or once every six weeks, sort of accountability, and we have some questions that we ask each other. And one of the questions that we ask every time we catch up is, what problem has consumed your thoughts this week? And you know the amazing thing is we've never, ever ever had a time when we've asked that question where we've been unable to answer it. Whenever the question is asked, we always go, oh yeah, I had this problem, and this problem, and yes, it's consumed an unhealthy amount of time in my head. Maybe for you, it's a health crisis. Maybe it's trouble at work, you've got workplace issues going on, or relationship problems, with friendship groups, within your marriage, within your family. Maybe it's financial problem. Maybe you feel like you've been unfairly treated at the moment. And maybe I've got to the end of that list and you think, well, that's not me. 
your turn will come. <laughs> Sorry, that's the news. Your turn will come. Problems will arise. And the Israelites, they had problems too. This is what we read about in uh, Exodus 17, verse 1. It says this, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. Now, that's not because it was a bad place. It just means that it was Sinai. By stages, according to the command of the Lord, and kept at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Who commanded the move? The Lord, right? He organized it. He planned this, right? He knew there would be no water there. The Lord organized this whole thing. So why would he do that? Why would he lead them to a place where he knew they were going to have a problem? Well, it says this in James. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, problems of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the Lord's really going to test them. Have they grown in steadfastness? Are they able to hold fast, especially in times of trouble, especially in rough times? It was a real problem, right? You're in the desert and there's no water, you're going to die. It is a real problem. Your problems and your trials are real to God. He is aware of them, He knows about them, and He cares about them. But sometimes He arranges them. He plans them. In Exodus, up until this point, it says four times God tested his people. He tested them to see, not so that they would fail, but to see whether they would really trust him. That they would really get to this understanding that he is good, that he does care for them. But this is the response that they give. It says this in verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Isn't that like the first first sign of a problem is they quarrel. I don't don't know if if you struggle with this, but sometimes when things go wrong, when you, you face a situation, well, I haven't planned for this, or, or something doesn't work out right, do you automatically look for someone to blame or, or to pick a fight with? Uh, for my wife and I, if uh, she wakes up in the middle of the night and it's a dark room and she, she's going to the bathroom and she walks and she trips over a chair, she will say, I just tripped over a chair. But for me, if I get up in the middle of the night and I'm in a dark room and I'm walking to the bathroom and I trip over a chair, I usually say, who put the chair there? Who put the chair there? I want someone to blame. We have this tendency. And the Israelites are unfortunately no different. But they don't just complain, they demand It says there, give us water to drink, right? It is a command. It is an imperative. And just for a second, just imagine they're like, like, what do they really want Moses to do? 
What did they think was going to happen? Moses was going to go, oh, gosh, thank you so much for asking. Uh, you know what? Just around the tent there, we've got like a whole stash of that nice Evian water for you. It's on us. Just go around the back and help yourself. Is that what they thought was going to happen? Right? Isn't it amazing that sometimes when we face problems, we demand crazy things. We often demand crazy things of God. We become unreasonable. And it was the first sign of trouble. What they did was they turned on their leader instead of turning towards God. The truth is Moses couldn't provide. Never rely on your leader to provide. No leader can provide. That's why Moses actually calls it. He goes, why do you quarrel with me? It's not, it's not, it's, you, actually your problem is not with me. Your real problem is with God. And it's the same for us. You know, we can quarrel and fight with people. But the truth is, sometimes we, we hold God at arm's length. We don't really involve Him in our life. We kind of go through things. And then we face this crisis, this problem, and we suddenly treat God like a genie. Come, come now, answer me. Answer me, help me solve my problem. And when He doesn't answer it like we would, we go, oh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it leads to despair. And that's exactly where the Israelites find themselves. It says this in verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Just spare a thought for, Mo for Moses at this moment. If you thought you were having a bad day, imagine that, right? Imagine the day he's having. But the truth is, when we focus on our problems, if that's where our gaze takes us to, it will lead to despair. But really, what it's exposing in these Israelites is this heart issue. And they are making three very clear accusations against God. <clears throat> the first one is they are demanding God's provision. Give us water. The second thing is they are denying God's protection for them, right? They've just assumed the worst. They haven't cried out to him. They've just assumed, oh, God's not in it. He's abandoned us. And the worst of all, is they doubting God's presence. They're asking this question, is God with us or not? And that's what they're really asking. And we can ask it in our trials and our problems that we face. The real question we're struggling with us is, is God with us or not? Now, what the Israelites suffered with wasn't just long-term memory, it was short-term memory. All they had to do at that moment was look over their shoulder and realize, oh my goodness, God has provided for us. Don't you remember just a couple of weeks back where he turned the bitter water to sweet? And yeah, just last week when he, he provided meat and quail for us and manna. Yeah, he has provided. And, and what about protection? 
Well, there was that incident last month when we were at the Red Sea, and we were kind of trapped, and Pharaoh's army was coming to kill us. And, and what did we do? Oh, well, God provided the pillar of, of his presence, which, which caused the, the Egyptians to be panicked and not see them. And then he opened up the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptians. He protected his people. And then the last one, what about his presence? All the time in the wilderness, he had gone ahead of them with a cloud during the day and this pillar of fire at night. And the Israelites in one go had just seemed to have forgotten all that. How many times does God have to prove himself? You see, in our problems, in the trials that we face, we can forget these things too. We can forget the amount of times that God has provided for us. The times that God has protected us. And the times where we know He's been with us. And here's the saddest part of the story. In their utter despair, what the Israelites do is they basically put God on trial. They got these lists of grievances and accusations against him, and they charge God. They say, you are neglecting to provide for us, you are refusing to protect us, and now you're failing to be present with us, right? God, actually, the truth is, you're not really loving, and you're not really good. It's kind of like children suing their parents, and there is actually an example of this, right? There was a, a young 18-year-old girl named Rachel Canning. And um, in her home, parents sat her down one day and said, Listen, Rachel, when things are not going well at home. Uh, you're not doing any of your chores. And the guy you're dating, he is a really bad influence on you. And we want you to end that relationship. Uh, and if you can't end it, like, you're going to have to make a choice. Either you're going to stay with us and end that relationship, or you're going to have to leave. And Rachel said, I'm 18, I'm out of here, you don't tell me what to do. And off she went. And after a couple of months, she found out it's not as easy as she thought. So instead of going humbly back to her parents, what she did was sue them. She took them to court. And she said, listen, I've been kicked out of home they are now responsible. And she said, they, they're going to finish paying my private school fees, right? Her parents had sent her to a private school, and when she had moved out of home, they had stopped paying. And she said, this is wrong. They should pay. Then she also demanded her future college education be paid for. And she said, listen, I'm really struggling. Uh, I'm also going to sue you for 650 American dollars a week for my maintenance. You know, I need to have a good time and I need food. And it went before the judge. And the, the judge listens to all this, and then they turn to her parents. And it's the most amazing thing. Her parents said, look, we love her. We just wanted to come home. We just wanted to come home. And it took a little while. It took a little while. But Rachel, eventually, the penny dropped. She realized her parents were actually quite wise. 
She realized the guy she was dating was actually a jerk and he wasn't that good for her. She went home and mom and dad were there with open arms. But Rachel had forgotten. She'd forgotten all the years mom and dad had provided for her. All the years mom and dad had protected her. All the years mom and dad had been there. And that's exactly, exactly what the Israelites are doing. They've just forgotten and they've assumed the worst. And they take it one step further. They accuse God of plotting a murder. They say to him, you want to kill us. It's been your plan all along. You've brought us out here because you want to kill us. You know, they, they were saying these things to Moses, but really Moses was, was God's ambassador. He was God's representative. And the Israelites got together and they decided, no, God, you are guilty of these charges. You're guilty of them and you need to be punished. We think the death penalty is, is the, right, the right outcome here. And because we can't kill God directly, we're going to kill his representative. We're going to stone Moses, right? Stoning was a conventional way at that time to carry out the death penalty. Is if you charge someone, they were guilty, you would stone them to death. We're going to do this to Moses. You know, guys, we, we can do this too. We're like, God, you prove yourself to me. And what we do is instead of starting with God and his character, and we view all our situations and our, our circumstances through that lens, what we tend to do is we start with our circumstances our problems that we face, and then we view God through that, and we judge Him on that basis. So when my circumstances are good, everything's going well, blue skies, clear sailing, God is good. But when my circumstances are bad and things are tough, God's bad. God's bad. And that's what they're saying here. God is bad. Look at our circumstances. He's not providing, he's not protecting, he's not being present. And you can kind of see Moses is, is trembling at this point, right? He's like, Lord, what shall I do with these people? They want to kill me. Actually, they really want to kill you. And the Lord brings his deliverance, but it is in such an unusual and unexpected way. This is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. <coughs> Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Here's the amazing thing, right? Israel put God to the test. Israel put God on trial when it really should have been the other way around. God should have been judging the people for what they did. He should have been testing the people. But what is really amazing here is that God actually subjects himself to their accusation. God actually puts himself on trial. He gives them exactly what they wanted. Now, why would he do this? Why would he do this? Because he's showing them 
He's showing them the way of salvation. See, God is actually going to deliver them by submitting to his own rod of judgment and taking the judgment in Moses' place. He does it like this. Moses, this is, this is the battle plan. I want you to pass on before the people. Moses, don't be shy of conflict. Conflict will come. Don't run away, Moses. Walk in front of the people. Take the elders of Israel with you. Moses, you're part of a team. You're not a one-man band. You're not on your own. There's a whole team that's with you. But also what he was saying, when, when you had an assembly of elders, they gathered because they passed judgment on disputable matters. He's actually saying, Moses, they've set you up. You're now on trial. I want you to get your jury ready. Take with you the staff with which you struck the Nile. You see, God had given Moses the staff at the burning bush as proof of his presence. But it was also, it represented God's authority as a judge. And he says, Moses, you remember the time that you struck the Nile with that staff? You remember that day when you confronted Pharaoh as he was coming out and you said, let my people go? And Pharaoh said, no way. And in judgment, in judgment, you struck the Nile. You brought judgment against the Israelites. And in judgment, you brought death as the Nile turned to blood. Moses, remember that. Now, strike the rock with the same judgment, the same staff. It is going to be another act of divine judgment as he smashes the rock. You see, it was at Horeb, right? This is where God first appeared to Moses. And he's going to appear to them again. He's going to say, I will stand before you there on the rock. I will stand before you. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what that looks like. It doesn't say he appeared in, in a pillar of fire or, or a cloud of smoke, or maybe he was invisible. But what we know is he was there. And the New Testament picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 10. And it says this, They all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Jesus. God is actually there in the form of his son at the rock of Horeb. See, the elders had gathered. They were going to see, what is the judgment? And Moses struck the rock, which was Christ. It was an act of judgment. It shouldn't have been the judgment on Christ, but it was. And as it came down, the judgment came down on the rock. What came out of it? Living water. Living water came out of the rock. It says this, He, God, opened the rock and water gushed out of it. It flowed through the desert like a river. There's a, I learned this this week. Um, there's a picture here I want to show you. Does anyone have an idea where that picture might have been taken? It's in a place called Saudi Arabia in a little place called Rephidim. Now, the most amazing thing about this rock is that it is unnaturally split. The rock scientists 
look at it, and they go, that's an unnatural split. Rocks don't usually split like that. It's in the middle of the desert. All around it, the rocks are rough, they're sharp, they're jagged, except in this one place. In this place where that rock is, all around there, the rocks are smooth, as if a river just gushed over them and took away all the rough edges and flowed and flowed over them. Now, you can make of that as you will. But for those who say that the Bible is not real, well, there it is. But you know what? The bigger question we have to ask is, what did the water prove? What did the water prove? It proved everything that the people were questioning God about. They were questioning God. God, where's your provision? God, you don't protect. God, where are you? You're not there. But as the water flowed, it answered all three of those questions. It proved that God had the power to provide. Their biggest need was water. What did he give them? Not just a little bit. Not one bottle of Evian. He gave them a river. It says he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow like rivers. He provided more than that, it says he protected them, right? Who should have been judged for their sins there? It should have been the people of Israel. They didn't even realize the, what they were putting themselves under. But yet, God protected them and took the judgment on himself. Took the judgment on himself. The righteous judge, was the hammer was given. And it actually, it says that the hammer came down on the rock, and the rock was... Christ. It was on Jesus. And the third thing it answers, this water flowed, it's this. It's the big question the Israelites were asking is, is God with us or not? He says, well, there's your answer. Your Savior standing on a rock. There was a, a play done a few, actually many years ago. Uh, it was called The Sign of Jonah. And actually, it was, it was a brilliant play. Uh, and it was kind of done around this question of who is to blame? That was kind of the question that was going on. And they used the Holocaust as a premise, right? Who's really to blame for the Holocaust? And they had all these characters around from that time, and they having this discussion. And you've got a stormtrooper who stands there, and he goes, well, uh, I'm not really to blame. I was just following orders. And then you, you had an industrialist, a factory worker, a factory owner. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not really to blame. I was just told to keep up production. And then you had one of an ordinary citizen, and he goes, well, you know what? I just, I didn't really want to become involved. So I, I kind of stayed out of it. And, and as these guys are giving their own defense of their innocent, they realize actually, man, we're, we're all a little bit guilty. You know, some of us are guilty by our words, Others of us, we're guilty by our silence. Others are guilty by what they did. And some of us are guilty by what we didn't do. And so they all come together and, and they say, well, actually, we are to blame. Yes, we are to blame. But we're not the most to blame. The real blame belongs much higher. God is to blame. 
God must go on trial. And is that not the cry of this generation? Where we're like, God, you're on trial. You're to blame for the mess we're in. And so they put God on trial. And they got all people from all different generations, all who had suffered. They had African Americans there who were part of the slave trade. They had people from the Holocaust there, all giving their their words of of what should happen. And they find God guilty. And then they, they gather and they say, what should the sentence be? What should the punishment be? And they all think about it and they go, well, you know, I never had a home in this life. So he shouldn't have a home. He should be homeless. He should be, he should take on human form. You know, I never had any powers, neither should he. He should limit himself to being a human. He should wander on this earth. He should be deprived of his rights. He should be homeless. He should be hungry. He should be thirsty. He should lose a son. And he should have the anguish of a father who's lost a son. And then he himself must die. And in his death, he must be disgraced and ridiculed. That's the sentence he needs. You know, that's exactly, exactly what happened. God sent Jesus into this world. And the people did to him exactly what the Israelites wanted to do to Moses. Jesus was without home. He was a wanderer. He was times of incredible hunger and thirst. He was deprived of all his rights. He was stripped. He was mocked. He was beaten. And then he was condemned to die a disgraceful and painful death. And yet, the rock was Christ. He's the rock of our salvation, right? As Moses is striking the rock, that is what happened to Jesus on the cross. The Father struck him with divine judgment. It says this in Isaiah 55.3, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. We deserved it, he took it. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He took it so that we could be free. You know, the the judgment that Christ received, it's proof of our protection. If you ever doubt that God will protect you, it's there, it's on the cross for you. He took that punishment, so you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear it at all because he's taken it for you. He has already shown he will protect you. You know, it's, it's this beautiful picture of that the rock was Christ. There's this little scene in, in John's gospel where it says they were, while Jesus was on the cross, they wanted to see whether he was really dead or not. And it says one of the soldiers took a spear and, and pierced his side. And it says out of his side flowed blood and water. Now that would have proved that Jesus was dead beyond a doubt, because when the body dies, the blood and the sinew congeal. But it's also showing there's this beautiful symbolism in there. He's shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, but also as water flows out of him, he's given us life. 
Jesus said this. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Jesus is our provider. He is our protector. And for anyone who believes in him and has put their trust in him and follows him, it says he will fill you with his spirit. His very presence will come inside you. He will be with you. You know, in Christ, God is what he was for Israel. He was Israel's provider, he was Israel's protector, and he was Israel's ever-present help. And in Christ, he is the exact same for us. That's exactly what Paul meant when he said the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Living water flows out of him. You know, the, the truth is, in the problems we're going to face this week, or the problems you are facing, or the problems you're going to face in months from now, you will be tempted to think, God, why don't you provide? You will be tempted to think, God, why are you not protecting me? And you will be tempted to think, God, where are you? But he's there. He's there. And sometimes, sometimes we just miss it. We just miss it. When does water taste the sweetest? It's in the dry places. It's in the desert, right? When you're very thirsty, water tastes amazing. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I, we were in South Africa, and we, we were in Cape Town, and we went to Table Mountain. And uh, we were going to do like sort of the lazy way up, and they had this cable car where you could just take the cable car and go up the mountain. That's my idea of climbing mountains, taking the cable car. But the cable car was closed for maintenance. Uh, but just sort of to the right of it was this little path that you could walk up some of the way. Now, we were not ready for hiking. We were not dressed for hiking. And we had no water. But uh, I was kind of trying to impress my wife with how amazing Table Mountain was. And I said, come, honey, let's walk up some of the way at least. And we started walking up, and in quite a short amount of time, we made good progress. I said, let's go a little bit further. Went a little bit further, and we seemed to be like, oh, this is actually quite easy. We're doing quite well here. And then we, we kept going and kept going, and suddenly we were about three quarters of the way up, and we were thirsty. Like that, that phrase, dying of thirst, that's what it felt like. We were, and we were kind of, we couldn't go down. We were, we were like so close to the top, and we knew there was a shop there. Do we keep going? Now, my wife is a lot more humble than I am. And she stopped some other hikers, and she said, please, can we have some water? And uh, I, I just said we should carry on. But she was humble and said, let's ask for water, and they did. I tell you, that water was Amazing. As we drank it, it was like life just being given to you. You feel on, on the verge of hopelessness, and suddenly you're restored, and you drink, and you drink, and you drink, and you feel refreshed. That's what Jesus says he is to us. He will just fill us. This water will flow in us, welling up to eternal life. That water is still available to us. You know, there's another name for Jesus. We use it a lot at Christmas time, and I, I think that's a shame because we should use it all the time. And it's this name, Emmanuel. Does anyone know what Emmanuel means? 
God with us. Jesus means God with us. We are tempted to believe when we enter storms and troubles and trials, we're tempted to believe God is not with us. And he says, no, I'm going to underline this for you. My name is Emmanuel. God is with us. He is with you. He will provide. He will protect. And he is with you. You know, Jesus was so full of grace that he knew we would forget. He knew we were going to struggle with this. He said, guys, what I want you to do, I want you to remember me. Take communion. Take the the cup and the bread. Remember the cross. Remember what I've done for you in the cross. Remember that I've provided for you. I've protected you, and I promise to be with you. But he also said, guys, worship. When we worship We're reminding each other of his promises to us that we can stand on. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to stand. We're going to worship our God, our Savior, who gives us his strength and his provision because he is good. He is good. But this is what I want you to hear. If you are in the middle of a storm, And you've been wondering, God, where are you? Where are you? I just can't see your provision. I can't see your hand in this. I want you to hear this. Jesus is with you. He will provide. He has already protected you. And he is with you. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the rock on which we stand. We thank you that you are the rock that took the righteous judgment on yourself. And yet, as you were struck in judgment, living water flowed out of you. Lord, we look to the cross, and as you were struck on the cross, we know that living water flowed out of you that is available for us today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our provider. You are our protection and that you are with us, Lord. Father, I pray for us as a people. Lord, may we know your presence this week as we go out into the world, Lord God, as we go to our places of work, as we deal with maybe health struggles or financial struggles, Lord, we know that you've promised to be with us. Give us spiritual eyes to to see that, Lord, and to trust you. Father, I pray for us as a people, Lord, that we would see you in all your glory. Lord, that we wouldn't have short-term memory loss, but we would know that you are right there, that you are right there. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. Amen.